Hi, I'm Matthew, producer for Undisciplined, and you're getting ready to hear a live podcast recording of the show. We were live in front of a standing room only crowd at the Squire Jehagen Outreach Center in Fayetteville. So, without further ado, let's get into it. Thank you so much for being at a live recording of Undisciplined. My name is Matthew Moore. Thank you for being with us. This is the part where you pick up the microphone and you talk with me. Oh, right, 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 right. Yes, thank you, Matthew. How are you, We're Karee? so excited to be here. It's been a minute since we've done. I know, that's why I was waiting for the, you know, microphone check uh, kind of clue in. Check one, two, one, two. <laughs> okay, you know. But uh, so great to be celebrating another Black History Month with my lovely folks here in Northwest Arkansas. <laughs> Great. And I mean, you know, what we're here to talk about tonight, black erasure in Northwest Arkansas. It's, it's almost like an oxymoron, like black and Northwest Arkansas. Do they even go together, Matthew? Yeah, they go together about like, uh, I'm trying to think of two things that don't go together very well. <laughs> but we have a narrative here in Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm about this town and what it is and the demographics and its history yeah right this very nice liberal town it is right okay right all right okay (laughs) you know it's a very nice liberal town um a history that is steeped in this kind of current presentism, you know, niceness. Like, the slavery here, if it existed at all... It was was the good slavery. Good slavery. Good masters. Yeah. They didn't hit hard. Yeah. You know? The right-handed ones only hit with their left hand. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right. So we have this, this history in Northwest Arkansas, and because of the current demographics, it seems that we confirm this history in our mind. Yeah. But today we're here to talk about what has transpired to lead us to this current times. In fact, it's not just Northwest Arkansas Mm -hmm. that has experienced this kind of a whitewashing Mm -hmm. or kind of erasure. Yeah. Have you heard of Seneca Village, Matthew? I haven't. Seneca Village. Have you been to Central Park in New York? Once. Well, you've been close to Seneca okay. Village, okay. which was once a thriving African-American community. Yeah. But now it's a park. It's a nice park, Korea. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we have Seneca. Have you heard of Lake um, Lanier? I have not. Ah. So you, do you know that what is now a lake with ghosts that haunts and turn over boats was once an African-American community? No. Oh, yeah, so the ghosts of African-Americans who were treated badly sure, are just flipping over boats and yeah. dragging people down to the bottom. Right. Right. You know, you've heard of Mount Bayou. You've heard of Tulsa. I've heard of right? Tulsa. That was almost released, yeah. firebombed. Yeah. You've heard of Louisville, mm-hmm. right? All of these communities that seemingly have very sparse black occupants and residents in many cases, once had a thriving history. Yeah. 
I'd like to, uh, I'm sure many of you all know about, if you've heard about Nelson Hackett, recently we had some changes to our landscape where Nelson Hackett is concerned. Our signage. Our signage. Yeah. Yes. Right. But Nelson Hackett, um, in July 1841, was perhaps one of the most famous people in Northwest Arkansas. He was the Walmart of Northwest Arkansas <laughs> in the 1840s. And Nelson Hackett fled Fayetteville, Arkansas and escaped all traveling across slave territory, Missouri, headed up to Detroit and crossed into Canada into his freedom. And Nelson Hackett has the reputation of being the only enslaved black person to have ever been returned to slavery from Canada. And thousands of African Americans escape slavery to Canada. I mean, Nova Scotia, you know, all these communities that exist in Canada that were made up of African Americans tells us that story. But Archibald Yell brought back Nelson Hackett into slavery where he was brutally beaten on the square that we all visit, then was sold down into Texas. Yeah. But if we, can, if we can acknowledge that story of this one black person that really affected national and transnational history, we can understand what perhaps the slave community and other succeeding communities might have been like here in Northwest Arkansas. But if Nelson Hackett, by what he did, by voting with his feet, escaping slavery and the brutality of, its of this machine, where he was talked about in Buckingham Palace among the kings and queens in Parliament and the House of Commons, I think it tells us something about this community that we're going to be talking about tonight. And we have a fascinating group of panelists to really help us unpack the historic Northwest Arkansas black community in its historic and its current form. So let me introduce Matthew, our guest. Please do. Sharon Killian. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who here does not know Sharon Killian? Or if you don't know her, you've heard her mouth. I call her my auntie. This is my auntie. I, she is my inspiration. But she is the president of the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association. She's the president of Art Ventures and a member of the Washington County Remembrance Group. She moved to Arkansas in 2005 from the Washington, D.C. metro area. She's an artist. She's a teacher who's, uh, you know, she's taught art, uh, art classes at the University of Arkansas in the art education department. And she's leading these nonprofits that intersect art, culture, history to, come, uh, to empower the Northwest Arkansas black heritage and unearth regional history that has been long denied including African-Americans, their role on the Trail of Tears, and other kinds of history related to black people that exist here. The illustrious Sharon Killian. 
<laughs> Professor Ngozi Brown. An ar architect and designer, right? Owner and principal in charge of NOBAD. And uh, she is uh, leading a team of professional architects and interior designers licensed in multiple states, including Arkansas as well as Texas. And the design team has experience with multiple types of buildings spanning international markets, but their main office is located in Little Rock. They consult also in Arkansas in places like Siloam Springs. They enjoy designing with an evidence-based approach and in a manner that is environmentally friendly as possible. They believe when thoughtfully designed, the built environment has the potential to uplift the spirit and inspire the soul. And goes around, everyone. <laughs> Tommy Davis. <laughs> Tommy Davis is a longtime community member, uh, descendant of this Northwest uh, Arkansas historic black community. Her parents um, has owned property here around different parts of Fayetteville. Her mother um, was a self-made carpenter here in Northwest Arkansas. She herself started college here at the University of Arkansas before moving on to Arkansas State, where she finished a bachelor's in social work. She later went on to ULAR uh, to finish her master's in social work. And so we're so happy to have her on the panel tonight, Tommy Davis. Chris Seawood. He is the corporate and giving manager at Theater Squared. In his role, he leads uh, in establishing and managing all corporate and institutional giving programs and relationships. And prior to this, he served as the chief operating officer at the historic St. James Missionary Baptist Church for nine years. He also worked at the Walmart stores uh, for nine years in various operational and supply chain management roles. He graduated from the University of Arkansas. He holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science. And he serves as treasurer for the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council. He has been married for 22 years to his lovely wife, Miranda, an educator in the Fayetteville School District, and he's the father of three boys, Caleb, Micah, and Joshua. Chris Seawood. <laughs> All right, thank you so very much. We hope to have um, just a, a wonderful discussion, um, you know, make it as, you know, informative and interactive as possible. You know, I don't want to be a principal up here. Uh, <laughs> but we're trying to get as much information as we can to you all, the community members, and to those who will listen later on. Um, but we're going to try to have a little fun, too, because why not? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start off by asking Sharon Kellyan, You've been doing this work in your position as the director of the Northwest Arkansas Black Heritage Association. Yeah. What can you tell us about black 
Northwest Arkansas, its inception and its history. Uh, hey, everybody. <laughs> it's good to see you. Thanks for being here. One of the first things I should say is that it is a lot like many other places that I know about. It's not that different, okay? And the work for me here is that uh, I really like Northwest Arkansas. I love Fayetteville. I like my place. I want to love it, okay? I want to feel completely at home, and so I am trying to work to get there. That is the impetus behind our work. Um, I started along with Melba Smith, who was a descendant of enslaved peoples in Washington County. That means just up the street, right, right in, in the middle of town and all the things. And um, she's traveled all over the world too. And we met here and we saw it and we wanted to live the rest of our lives with a certain amount of pleasure, with a certain amount of comfort that it's ours because it is. Dignity, respect. Yes, dignity and respect. So um, we started, I, don't, I wouldn't say small. She had been doing the work from her side and her community. And believe me, um, there is a web. You know, what did they say? Trees have roots that talk to one another mm. and that kind of thing. Mm. The people, they, everybody might not be in this room, but there are connections. Mm -hmm. And the <laughs> in any event, I've learned a whole lot about how similar this place is to most everywhere else that we know about in this country and most slave states outside of this country. And uh, one major thing is that as with enslavement, after emancipation, everybody in the white community is focused on erasure. We can't have them living next to us. They don't need that space. They don't really deserve to live here or next to us. We're just gonna move them to a 10-acre plot, someplace that we decide. To a lesser desired, to a lesser desired place. We already have the, the lane marked through it. It's, that's right, lesser desired. Mm -hmm. And we'll just move them there. And there is no discussion. There is discussion among the white community, the municipality, you know, i.e. the city, the school, but not with the black people. I do tend to be wordy, but um, so a lot of times we hear about um, David Walker. Who is David Walker for those who da don't oh, know? Oh, sorry. One of the largest slaveholders or slavers, as I I call um, the class, the slavers in uh, Washington County. He, ha he um, uh, enslaved about 33 people, and they, most of them were actually at, you know what Dead Horse Mountain Road is? For those of you who are here, just like at 265, the next light to the east, go right, well, 
that piece of uh, the, uh, the branch of the White River, that was one of his um, slave camps. So Dave, that's who David Walker is. But David Walker also lived right here in, right off of Willow, near, right off, okay? Uh, and uh, you know where the, uh, the Fayetteville uh, housing project is, just across the street? Yes. Okay. Some of that property, right. the the Confederate cemetery. Mm -hmm. On top of that, were actual slave quarters. Mm. Okay, which so were of course just up the street, right across yeah. the street, mm -hmm. wiped out. Uh, in any event, we all we hear about him mostly because he's one of the most wealthy ones here, right? And he came about 1830, but before then, and I I don't remember the name of this particular slaver or two or three or four or more, set up in Cane Hill. Cane mm -hmm. Hill was even, that was a slave community. If you want to talk about slave community in this, in this uh, region. How far is Cane Hill from us right here now? Uh, it's uh, 16 um, or 62. About 35 minutes. 35 minutes. It's on the other side of Prairie Grove. Yes. All, and, and you know, you hear about, oh, uh, that's right, Prairie Grove. Mm -hmm. You hear about the, the uh, apple orchards and all of that. It's on the way out to, to Cane Hill. Uh, it's also the site of the first college, but I can tell you that there is hardly anything that you will see about the historic Cane Hill, which is being talked about right now, that says anything about me. And I built it. I built it with my, my body, with my family, well, I was supposed to have that. My mind and resilience, all of that. And so we have that. Every town around here, there were enslaved people. So Rogers, Springdale, Bentonville, all parts of it. Madison County, and, and I mention these because a lot of the people from all of these places ended up in Fayetteville. Okay, so they came to Fayetteville and they kind of consolidated into a community kind of around here? Well, they went quite a number of places in Fayetteville. Mm -hmm. There was a whole community on what is now the VA hospital site mm -hmm. from, let's see, what's the name of that road? Yeah, it's on North Street. It's on North Street, but it goes all the way to, uh, to Woolsey. Mm. All the way. Did I hear Woolsey? Yeah. Yo, yeah, the I audience knows. I mean, listening and you're give out the PhDs. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. So, yes. And then going, if you turn, you go east on, from, from college on North Street, Red Hill. There was a com black community on, called Red Hill. Then there were uh, several residencies all the way off college, across now what's, what's called Archibald Yell, and so on. It's like, how did that happen? Then there's more. The, the, this is uh, immediately after emancipation. Mm -hmm. Is that okay to move? Yes. yes. Um, the school, Henderson School, was put at uh, Olive Street, which is right 
Near Lafayette Street. And what is Henderson School for? Those Henderson of us? School was the school for blacks. And it was, uh, I forget the name of the, the, it, the, the organization that created it, but they were creating schools. What? Um, created by uh, uh, a group that was building schools across the South. Okay. Now, you know that enslavement meant um, forced illiteracy, right? Right. Okay. Uh, you, you, know, you could get in real trouble to learn to read and to write. So, uh, in any event, Olive Street is at Lafayette Street, which turns into Mission. You know what I'm talking about. If you're here, you're here, you know what I'm talking about. And that school was for the black kids. So that means they're probably going to be in walking distance, right? And it's uh, the pres in the present day, hey, we drive everywhere. Maybe we start to ride. I kind of doubt it a whole lot about black people riding. But the community, the black communities around, the kids would have to walk to get to school, but that is the center of the school, okay? The center of the community is the school. The kids get to stay and play. The parents get to come and talk to the teachers. You have, it's a kind of a safe space. It became beautiful up there. People could see the university from the hill. You can see all around the view was great. That means the black people don't deserve to have that land. Well, at that point, usually what happens is, like in the case of Miami now, just for reference, yes, black people are on the interior because the beach used to be the great parts. Well, let the architect tell us. <laughs> yes, let her tell it. <laughs> you probably know more about it than me. I'm not a, a native. I did live in Florida for a little while, but yes, I just I was just nodding a, a, in agreement because um, now that we have um, and um, th there's there's lots of conversations actually in preservation architecture about climate and how climate is affecting um, the way where people live, and so kind of in a poetic justice situation in, in Miami, the people inland have the safer land. Um, they might not have the views, but they also don't have the- um, They're not on the, the water. Hurricane. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and Miami, um, South Beach, all of those uh, prestigious er areas that were deemed uh, prestigious earlier are now sinking. And so the gentrification is now affecting the black people who were pushed into little Haiti, pushed into a little Havana, pushed into all those areas. So I'm saying that the Henderson schools start to look attractive. It's attractive. Yeah. Attractive. It never used to be attractive. Yes. That's why they put the school there. Yes. Yeah. That's right. It wasn't. You want to go lift, you want to lift your water all the way up there? You want to <laughs> drag your water up in a bucket like most of us used to have to do up the hill? Mm -mm. No. Okay, that. so that's hard. <laughs> but then, oh, we love it. It's beautiful. Okay, and, and they didn't really start writing the code for the public to see until 45. But they've been doing it. They've been doing everything since emancipation. Right. And, and uh, they moved, the, they pushed the community down. I knew a person who was direct, directly descended from someone 
who owned a piece of property on Fletcher, and we're talking Fletcher Avenue up on the hill. We lived up there too. People had to, you know, families were walking. Um, somebody told me they scaled the fence, the rock wall at the Confederate Cemetery, you know, trot through, get over the wall again, and then walk along the water that exists now still up to east to Fletcher, wow. right along that lane that we have currently. So we have this history. How do we know? And is there current imprint of or evidence on the visible landscape of the black community's presence in these places that you're speaking about? There's a little piece of the building, Henderson School, still in existence. The, the, the property is owned by a, a white person and it has been owned by white people since mm -hmm. forever. Well, less a day or so. Mm -hmm. uh, 18, probably 1839 when they closed it. Mm -hmm. um, you mean 1939? 1939, okay. yes. Yeah, I live in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and that is, you know, it's kept like a, and, and if you're here, forgive me. I know that you know having resources helps you to keep things up, but yes, it and it's there is no signage, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but there's an, a, a piece of that left, which is good, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very it's a double-edged sword for me. It it hurts me, mm -hmm. okay. and it pleases me at the same time. <laughs> Um, we also have the cemetery. We have the cemetery, but guess what? It's just like history. It's just like history. It's in the back. It's unkept. Most of you are unmarked. Mm. Just a little, you know, the rude wire fence. And you have to really, really do your own research because the white people who write about the cemetery, if they mention the name at all, and they, and they sometimes mention the name on the, on the headstones if there are any for the black people, and there's some. Mm -hmm. You never know who they are because, first of all, they got the white people, the, the slaver name on there mm -hmm. because that's what we have, right? Mm -hmm. So, T.J. Walker, you have to really read and research and be interested in it to find out it's a black person. Right. right. The rest of them... You have to do LIDAR things. Mm -hmm. You have to use archaeology. You got to use archaeologists. You've got to do scanning mm -hmm. to find that. To unearth that history. That's right. You have to unearth the history. It is, I mean, when I came back, we, I did the Washington School tour. Um, I guess it was about 2007. And I went with Melba. And we bought our tickets. We love to do this stuff. The people in the home said, oh, did you go to, you know, did you go to, to uh, uh, Fayetteville High School? Or did you go to Lincoln School or whatever? And it's like, well, we, uh, we lived here until it, it desegregated, you know, and, and sure, I wasn't the first black person, but I had to, we had to go to school out of town, okay? Eighth grade, and then you, you got to go. Uh, in any event, the, what I, the, my point is here is that 
a lot of the people in these houses in the neighborhood that used to be the black folk, because this is where we went, all the fancy houses, now called Washington Willow District, which has encroached completely over anything that black, black around here. Uh, the story is that there was no slavery in Fayetteville. Wow. Well, we have someone here who has a long history, family heritage, and history, and occupancy in, in uh, Fayetteville. Ms. Tommy Davis, I'd like to ask you about growing up here in Fayetteville. And if you probably heard from your mother or relatives about what life was like here in the olden days. I lived it. Uh, you lived it. I lived it. Yes. Okay. Um, and my parents, my mother was originally from Fort Smith, moved here as a young girl. My dad uh, came from uh, Mississippi to uh, work for the Coca-Cola company. And so at some point in time, they finally did, met. But my mother, she attended uh, Lincoln School until, I, I don't remember what grade, ninth or something. Uh, they had to be bused to Fort Smith. And just, just keep in mind, these are kids being bused to another town where they had to stay all week in a boarding house to get education. And so she did that until she graduated. And um, the, I think the education was lacking somewhat. Uh, didn't really provide for any special needs the kids um, had at that time. They were just providing an environment for them to go to school. So that's where she attended school. My dad had an eighth grade education. He had to drop out when his mother passed in, in Mississippi and of course, work the farms and take care of his four sisters. Um, so basically, I was the uh, first generation uh, college graduate in my family, and I did attend Fayetteville High School. I did attend Fayetteville uh, School District, um, and it was interesting, the year that I should have started elementary school was the year Lincoln High School closed, and we were all what, the, what they did is they drew a line down the middle of Center Street and all the families to the north went to uh, Washington and Woodland. Families to the south went to uh, Jefferson and Ramey. So, you know, there was a little competition somewhat, and I didn't know this until I even got older, but the thought was, well, those uh, our community people that are going to Washington and Woodland think they're better than the ones going to Ramey and Jefferson. I never knew that, but the, I understand that was the feeling back in the day. Um, I actually started out at Peabody um, at the university instead of going to Washington, and once I went to Washington, I was advanced, but, and the teacher even knew it, she advocated for me to move up a grade, but they weren't willing to do that. But on the same hand, when they closed Lincoln School, a lot of those kids were held back a grade. So, you know, it, it, it didn't work the same way for me when I was uh, bored in class, would finish up everything, and I still had to sit there being bored. So I did go through uh, Washington, Woodland, and Fayetteville High. Um, I think we had our toughest time when we went to junior high school. 
we had seven, maybe six or seven elementary schools. Only two of those schools had experienced going to school with black children by the time we had gotten to junior high school. So you can just imagine all the other kids from uh, the elementary schools that were coming to junior high, they weren't accustomed to attending school with blacks. And there was a lot of racial issues uh, we experienced uh, then, and there were, um, there were times when uh, Mr. Vandergriff, who was the uh, uh, superintendent, would take the kids, us, to the administration building and talk about the issues that we were having to deal with, whether it be with other students, whether it be with the teachers, because we had teachers who really didn't want us there either. And that was, I think, giving us a safe haven to really express what was happening to us. I don't know how much it impacted, but we were able to get through it, had some wonderful, wonderful experiences, uh, both junior high and high school, really, really good friends, uh, you know, black and white, uh, junior high and high school, and I don't think I would have traded that experience for anything because they really, um, at some point in time, they really helped us to understand how to negotiate the environment that we were actually going to be living in, the, the majority. Uh, we had to know how to, and, and it, it was important to them that we assimilate back then, and we learned that. And I really don't think I would have traded for anything because it prepared me for dealing with what I had to deal with after I left Fayetteville. And so that was a real good experience for me. Fayetteville High, it was okay. There was, a, there was some issues with uh, racism and black students being treated different than white students. And I can remember the day I told Mr. Bonner, he was our assistant principal, that he was a bigot. And I said it because we had an incident with a, a fight. The black children were being suspended and the whites were not. Didn't understand that because I had reported multiple times when I arrived at school, there were four girls that would sit on the steps every single day to block me from going into the school. I reported it, nothing happened every single morning. And so that's why I made that comment to him and he agreed that maybe we all you know are bigots and i said well we all have some of our own uh ideas and understandings and and i just feel like Fayetteville high is not fair to uh the black students um, as a result of that i left after the 11th grade i had basically done what i needed to do and left there to go to college after that first, um, after going to college that uh, summer after my 11th grade, I tried to return to high school, but it's hard to go back to high school when you've been to college. And so I only needed two credits and I actually just went on and went to uh, the U of A and finished up. I graduated, I actually graduated with the class that I was gonna graduate with and picked up my two credits that summer. So. I was still able to um, participate in that aspect of Fayetteville High, but there were some struggles there. There were a lot of struggles there. Had great friends there, uh, 
you know, a lot of things that we did, it wasn't just with people in our immediate community. Uh, we had friends that um, kind of adopted us, I guess you can say, because we would hang out with them, we would do things, we would go to their house. Now, I, I don't know that they necessarily came to our houses, but, but we were welcomed in, in their house. And, you know, I can remember my mother saying that really the only time they went into someone White's house is when they worked for them. And she was a domestic. She took care of the McElroy kids and the and house and the Green Hops, and you all probably know them, they're local. And that's what she did, and that's how she was uh, able to, I think she made a lot of, of uh, connections based on who she worked for, um, and that carried throughout the years. Um, there was a point in time when the city decided they wanted this community. And I don't know which planet, city plan it was, I don't know if it was 1960 or what, I don't know, I don't know what city plan it was, but they planned to basically um, condemn the houses and take the houses and, and move the black families out. Mm -hmm. 45, okay, 45. I mean, that's the, that's the. It was on paper. That's mm -hmm. the routine, right? To, right. To, to, declare the neighborhood blighted Blight. right all right. of those language those words right. that we come to associate with black communities in right. order to justify the plunder exactly right to exactly. run the highway through the community right. just like little rock just like chicago right everywhere you go yes. a black community is going to be taken because powerless people cannot advocate for their land. Right, right. Right? Right. And 45 was only the beginning. And this conversation continued throughout the years. And what I learned from Miss Jessie B. Bryant, I think you all probably know her, is that we had blacks who worked at the courthouse and other strategic places, and they would hear conversations going on uh, by some of the uh, officials uh, basically discussing which houses they were gonna try and, and, and condemn or, or do whatever to. Those uh, community members would pull the community people together, primarily at the Methodist Church there, which it was the first black church in this uh, uh, in Fayetteville. The St. James uh, Missionary? St. James United Methodist you did, okay, United was the Methodist. first black church. Okay. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they would have meetings, community meetings, they would discuss which houses needed to, some attention, and community people would work together to try and bring the house up to a standard where it wasn't being attacked anymore. Community people stood up against the city and said, we're not selling and you're not gonna take our houses. And there was such, a, a, there was such a, an organized voice that Fayetteville backed off. They had a, a plan for this. I mean, you can look back at some of the city plans and see that they were planning to use this as park, park space, green space, jail expansion, convention. All of that was a part of the plan. Yeah. And the families fought against it. And the city said, well, we'll just sit back and wait until they're gone. And they waited until a lot of that generation left, and that's when they started moving forward with uh, the different things that can happen to 
break the community down. You know, there are different, uh, were different institutions. Mm -hmm. um, what kind of institutions? So Lincoln you had the St. James example. Church, Lincoln yeah, School. Lincoln School, for example. Even though they closed Lincoln School, we still used Lincoln School. We would have uh, summer, uh, summer programs there. We would have all kinds of community-based things at Lincoln School. So that brought us together as a community. I did my first piano recital at Lincoln School. Oh, wow. So that's something that we what did you used play? as a community. What? What did you play? Violin. <laughs> well, that no, that time I did the piano. I right. The what piano. song did you, did you play? Like uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb? Did you? Oh, something like that. Okay. <laughs> where, where did you get groceries? Um, we got gro groceries. It was like an IGA or Safeway or something. We, we did go to the grocery store. Now we did get our, we did get candy and penny candy from Miss Naomi mm -hmm. Smith, and she lived right down the hill. Her house is no longer there. There are so many houses that have history that my great grandmother lived, um, and it's hard to tell you. And, and it, it's actually it should have been a part of Meadow, East Meadow Street. And it, there was a bridge over, we called it the branch. I think they call it, what, Sprout Spring or something like that? The branch, we had a bridge that took us from this side of the community, which is Willow Street, to the other side of the community, which was Washington Meadow. And my grandmother lived right there on, on that side by the branch. That house doesn't exist any longer. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother lived on Meadow. That house no longer exists. They had the road going through from uh, Center Street to, to Spring Street. So systematically, mm -hmm. you know, our houses have, are gone. We lived at, in a house down on Jefferson School Grounds, where Jefferson School Grounds are. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, we lived there first, and my cousins lived on the corner of Willow and, Willow and, it was Sixth Street, but it's MLK. Yes. So those were, you know, just to see how the neighborhood is disappearing right before yeah. your eyes, it hurts. It does yeah. hurt. Yeah. But it's erasure as opposed to disappearance. Right. It's erasure and not just disappearance. Yeah, and it's, it's a plan. It's mm -hmm. a deliberate mm -hmm. plan, and it has mm -hmm. to stop. And it really does. just to say, we have, I have a piece of property on Rock Street. Back in 1979, my mother had proposed to do a seven-unit apartment complex there. Went through the process with the city, got a lot of good f feedback. Now, mind you, they've been asking her to donate that land to the city forever, and she refused to. So she was approved basically to do the complex, but what she had to do was go to engineering. So all this was like backdoor stuff. Go to the engineer and get it approved. The engineer didn't pr approve it because, quote, it's in a flood zone. The other reason why the engineer didn't pr approve it is because you take care of some of those other permits I've issued you, and then you can come back and talk to us. Those permits were, were on her taking care of her house, rehabbing her house. So they blocked her then, and she could not build, but she continued to ask. And then in 1990, they ran a sewer main down the center of her property and deemed it undevelopable. And this piece of property, um, they, they ended up doing eminent domain because she refused, yeah. to, she refused to donate the property, she refused to sell it. What ended up happening is they wrote a $1,000 check and said, you take this check, 
if you don't want it, it'll be sitting over here for you to get it, but we're gonna move forward with eminent domain and we're gonna run that sewer line down your property anyway. What's ironic is that the city property borders her property on both sides. There were three other options for running that sewer line mm -hmm. and they ran it and zigzagged the, city, the line so that it would go directly down the center of her property. Now, if you show it to someone now, sewer and water, they'll say, well, why did they run it like that? Yeah. Why? Mm -hmm. Figure that. So needless to say, daughter is back, daughter is ready to do some development. And I have worked closely with planning, sewer and water, lots of officials at the city who knows that it was wrong what had happened. Right. They recognize it was wrong, even though they may not verbalize that. Uh, but they know it, and I've, uh, I've been able to get back some of the property so that I can build on that property. Mm -hmm. So it was something that my mother did. It was kind of like, to me, it was like bullying. You're not going to give us to us, then we're going to do this. You're not going to give it to us, we're going to do this, mm -hmm. until they finally said she couldn't develop on it. Right. So just think, 1979, when she would have built seven apartments, think about what the value would have been now. Exactly, yes. exactly. Were you gonna say something, Professor Brown? Well, I was, it's, it's indirectly related, so I don't wanna go on a tangent, but this is the conversation I have this, with my this students This whole podcast is just tangent <laughs> upon we're tangent. We're tangent heavy. Big, I teach big tangent energy. It's yeah. called um, Spaces of Confinement, The Architect's Dilemma, and it's about prisons. But one of the conversations that I have with the students in all of, it's not only prisons, it's like ICE facilities and um, asylums and things like that, but the conversation that we have is, how are you complicit as a designer? Because the first thing, when you said that, I said, who stamped the drawings? I want to know who stamped the drawings. <laughs> because there's so many, we have, we, we see it. We see the, like, we see what's going on on the paper. And so when I, one of the things I ask my students to do is, you know, this, the kind of dirt that's done in back rooms, we design those rooms. Yep. We need to stop designing those rooms. We need to say no to this kind of work. We need to advocate for our... Um, well, one of the words, one of the words that, that, that Tommy said that really kind of sticks out to me is kind of a, 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 a buzzword is blight, right? right. This idea, domain, right, blight. it's this idea that like, um, that, that folks are going to tell you whether or not your community, your land, your area is redeemable, is worth being in. Yeah. Um, Professor Brown, can you talk a little bit about maybe kind of the history of you know, I, I lived in St. Louis for a while, and, and some of the areas of St. Louis that are predominantly African-American and black communities are, are food deserts. They have all of these indicators that when you look at them on their face, you're like, well, of course you're not going to thrive or survive in this kind of community, and it's been built this way on purpose. Can you talk well, about some of those things? Um, and I think you um, alluded to it, Dr. Banton. Some of those communities did have businesses. Right. And then the businesses were, were snuffed out. Exactly. Right. And, and then we get the scraps that are left over. I, I was having a conversation with a, a girlfriend of mine about um, the black woman because, you know. We're, yes. we're a unique species. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. And we were talking about chitlins. <laughs> I know that you're like, how does this relate? 
we tend to we tend to take the scraps yeah. and turn it into a, a meal, okay? And then everybody come and eat it. Black <laughs> girl magic, baby. Is. So a lot of these communities that you see that don't have anything, they did have something. Mm-hmm. Even if it was the, um, the grand, you know, granddaddy made it with lumber from his, you know, that he Farm. found or something. Yeah. There was something there. And that's why it is so important to establish um, some type of um, recognition of these spaces. Right. And I, so, you know, this idea of erasure, these spaces exist, and it does happen that people think they never existed because they are so cleanly and firmly erased that right. you never know it was there. There's no trace of it. But we can find traces of it, right? You found traces yes. of these communities the f- in the phone books, yes. in, the, in, the, in the Fayetteville Public yes. Library archives. What have you found? I found a lot of different things, you know. First of all, I must say, let me, let me just uh, stick one something in the middle of this conversation. Every once in a while, you find some allies. And you don't have to do every single thing yourself. We, we you know, because we're, we're, there's humanity. We are human beings who deserve that. And so we have, and we call allies usually around here, we call white people. You know, black people, they're part of the, they're always part of the struggle. I got a copy of the book, okay? I got a copy of the 1945 plan, what they call master plan. Great, of course I can get online and find it, but here it is with a bunch of other things and, you know, set forth. And you find that as they're telling you in this master plan that, that they have been doing, they say in, in the master plan, we have been working on this master plan since before 1900, and now we have to, we have to write it down, and we're going to tell you, because it's only us talking, what we are actually going to do. I find clues in those places, okay? So you find, you find clues as to where people live. You where can people map, lived, you, you can map. actually map these places yes. based on addresses that you've found from archival documents. Yes, and you find the, the responses, you know, they, do, they go through it and do, they say they're doing like um, surveys of the community. Right. And, and you know, they, they indicate race, Right. In some places, and the blighted community, they say, we're going to get rid of the blighted community because we, this is a really a beautiful town, and we want people to come here and live, but we have to get rid of the blight. Mm-hmm. The blight is the black community. They yeah. actually say it. That's the, that's the formula, though, to yes. declare it blight, right? Yes. Then declare imminent domain, and then you can bring in whoever you want into this frontier. <laughs> but what you have are, you have the houses that were safe for black people to come uh, to stop. Mm-hmm. The Green Book. The Green Book houses, there are three here, okay? There are the, there's a house where Silas Hunt actually stayed with the family. Because he couldn't stay on campus because at the University of Arkansas. Because he couldn't stay on campus. Yeah. There's the place, one of our community members right now, she owns a house on the land where this young black person from um, Pine Bluff came to go to school and he brought himself his house and put it on the land (laughs) 
And then when he was finished, he was able to move it. Mm. But th we find these things by searching and talking, and, but most of it is, is not recorded because we are, you know, not that we can't write and you're read and all than. of that. You're less than. Your history and you is not important. You don't belong in the system of where the news exists. So it's, it's a, as a historian, it's very important, you know, when we're talking about, you said erasure rather than forgotten, that these are deliberate things and they're institutions and spaces that are in collusion with these kinds of things. The archive is one because, you know, what goes into the archive? What does the oh. librarian deem important? I've got when a good the one. researcher goes in there to find what is important to write about, what do they think is important? So it's multiple levels of silencing and erasure that happens because you're being overlooked and overlooked again and again in the process. If I didn't know Lodine Defaba's name. I wouldn't have noticed it as I was looking for black history at the University of Arkansas Special Collections. Because this black woman who was doing that fight, you know, trying to hold on the, to the community, her papers are in some, a, a white woman's documents, in her box, in the white woman's box. Mm -hmm. It's just a lucky thing that I knew her name and it came to me that this is Lodi Defaba. That's great. Or well, even where we are right now, this building, it's named after again. a freed slave, and this building itself was is the yep. site of an arson that the building was burned down from racists, and it's been burned down multiple times. So, um, and has been the site for sit-ins from students at the university during the Civil Rights Movement, so history, yeah. Right, mm. we're sitting on it. Yeah, there, there are traces of it. Did you want to say something? Well, I just I was musing over here about um, your comment. I talked to my students about this today, about the need for there to be a sense of history um, that it gives you a sense of self. And this, this idea of hiding these, these documents or snuffing it out, I think about Bob Marley's um, verse, um, every time I plant a seed, they, they say kill it before it grows. <laughs> and how, how frustrating it is to, to get something started and, and to know that this will have value later, right? And then that thing that would have had value that would have um, given your, your, your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren a sense of worth to have that hidden um, so that they, so it's not just, you know, it's, it's not this building that's important. It's this person's sense of right to be here. This person's sense of presence in this space is erased, and they no longer know where they come from. There's actually a, um, a, a psychological, I can't think of the term for it, but there's a, there is a, a, a pathology for not knowing if you even exist. Right. And it, it happens in prisons a lot, but it happens right. when people can't connect to the past, right. when they don't know where they where they come from where they are and what 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 right do i have to any space right so. yeah where am i rooted where are my folks go ahead chris no. okay so I, I was see, gonna go ahead oh. i see that a lot with the younger generation that grew up here in fayetteville where we had community and we had different places we could go to uh basically know that we were we had each other's back, we knew each other really well, and then when you systematically do things to break down that structure, and there's no united voice anymore, and then you're told, 
well, you all don't want to live in this community because this is the ghetto. This is the, the right. you know, this is the, this. So you, that message. So you now get. you're trying to get out the hood and right. then that hood right. becomes big right. real estate money. Right. But yeah. that's the message we received our entire life. Right. And everybody black wanted to leave this community because of the negative connotation Absolutely. for this community. Now, look at it. Exactly. And the city knew it. Mm -hmm. Even my mother knew it. She was before her time, but even she knew it. Mm -hmm. Other homeowners and, and community me members knew it back then. Mm -hmm. It was not able to, we couldn't, what did you call it? Uh, where they didn't know where they came from because yeah. they didn't have any I, I couldn't remember the term. I said, <laughs> oh, I said it's a psychological right. term. It's, it's, right. <laughs> Scientifically said that. Right. So, and so I've had to have the discussion with my nephews just about some of their history that they have no idea about because they grew up later and they probably didn't even grow up in this community. So they did not have that connection mm -hmm. with the community. But Professor Brown, you've worked with some communities like that where we see lots of great grandma buys the house and then the kids leave the house. We've seen this in Detroit. We've seen this in lots of black communities. I'm working with a, a group, um, the um, Gateway community in Hot Springs. Um, there's a, a lady named Jean, um, Jean Lacefield. She's a board member on that, on that, uh, in that group. And I've gone down there. The first time I went down there, I did a walking tour of the neighborhood, the historic, um, it's a historic black neighborhood called Pleasant Street. And we went down, we, and I pointed out different architectural features of these houses. And, and she had the history. So she was able to talk about the history of the houses. And I was able to attribute the value and the craft, the craftsmanship to the houses. Um, and it was a chance for people in the community to understand that, the, you know, these are, these are black owned, black built houses. And um, they, they are, they were being sold. They were being, you know, uh, grandparents, yeah, it's the same, that same Grandma story. Grandma died and now yes. grandchildren are selling it and they're losing value yes. and legacy and heritage. Well, they're right next to, the thing is, is that there's, there's lots of investment happening right in exactly. that neighborhood. Thankfully, yeah. Jean is very vocal and mm -hmm. um, assertive. <laughs> She's yeah. gotten like over, over half a million dollars of investment into that space. So, um, and we're working together to try to do more, but I, it is important that that African Americans understand that you don't you don't um you don't buy high and sell low. <laughs> when it's low, you hold it, <laughs> and, and get some vision associated with it too. And that is how architects can help um, yeah. communities is to is to help get together and envision um, yeah. what can we do with this? How can we make this? Um, but before someone else does. And if you right. know it's coming, if you know development is coming, yeah. to hold your property. But this, at the same, by the same token, I do not believe it's fair that we are always having to fight to keep something. That we're always having to push back. It is tiring and it is, it is wrong. And what we have is theft. And then we are going to have to do the hard, hard labor to make up for it. And it's not right. That needs to be said. That needs to be, and it needs to change. Mm -hmm. There has to be redress. I know this is going to be, this is, you know, nobody won't, well. Go listen. ahead and say it. Go ahead. Go Reparations. Ahead. Reparations. <laughs> there has, it has to be. It is wrong what is happening here. 
Chris, you were going to say something? No, I, I have to agree with, with, with Ms. Sharon um, on that point. Um, and I mean, and to that degree, that's where uh, some of our work is coming from in terms of the MLK Council. Um, even with the work and the project we're getting ready to introduce here in the coming weeks with our state of Black NWA, um, it's a census project because we've looked out at the Northwest Arkansas region, particularly the last few years with all this growth um, that's happening in the region and how this region keeps being touted as a great place to live. And I would agree with those sentiments. I've lived here for 28, nine years, I've lost track. Um, and I've raised my family here, it is a great place. Um, but you know, you slowly come to these epiphanies as you look around. Um, I mean, I can remember when I moved here in 94, you, you know, when I first moved here, you still got the warnings, be careful where you drive. And when you did drive there, you got the looks and this and that, but things gradually have gotten better. Um, we didn't have trails like we do now. I mean, most of this stuff where you see buildings now were cow pastures and I don't know with all of the planning and the master planning that has happened and continues to happen if the black community has or is still even being considered in that um, conversation. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna force ourselves um, because we think we have to into those conversations. We have to get um, the majority uh, culture to think about how well or how well we're not doing in terms of our health care and our education and our economics and our housing and our social and criminal justice um, uh, how all those areas are impacting us so we're gonna go door to door we're gonna hit the airwaves we're gonna hit social media and we're gonna find out from our community um, and we're gonna collect that data and we're gonna report it back and so that people can see that, okay, as much as you, everybody is touting how well Northwest Arkansas is doing, that's great, we don't disagree, but here is where the black folk, this is where the black community is. And you, we talk about black erasure. Um, remember, you have to consider us in your planning, particularly as they quote unquote, continue to attract the best talent. Um, that has to include um, if you come from a Miami or a DC or a Los Angeles, if you look like me, that's one of the biggest questions that are asked. What does the environment look like for people that look like me? Um, and so another term that we'll try to banty about as much as we can to get people to understand a new jargon is, is cultural placemaking. Um, that means, okay, is there a cultural footprint that can be readily identified for the African-American community. So, so a Miss Sharon has a place, and I mean a place, um, that she can readily identify. When she identifies the history of black Northwest Arkansas, well, Miss Sharon needs a museum, um, and a great young black architect can help her build that. You know, a black young chef needs a restaurant. A black young architect can help build that. Um, but it's a place that the African-American community can go. We already, you know, I don't mean it any, I don't mean it wrongly, but we are already forced to assimilate 16, 18, 19 hours of the day. It's not about us wanting to not 
be with um, our brothers and sisters of uh, different cultures, but there is just something altogether different when we get to be in environments that are similar to us. We can let our hair down. We can hang out. We can go get our hair products. We can go to the barbershop. We can go get a barbecue plate, whatever. We can stop going to church to look at people's braids. Right. Um, So... What's your gut? What's your gut reaction like when before you before you're doing this census? Mm-hmm. What what are you expecting to hear? Do you have like expectations of of what you think you'll see, or and what do you hope will surprise you? Well, I mean, I mean, we're obviously hoping for good feedback. I mean, um, but I mean, we want to hear honest appraisals from our community um, on how how they're doing and their honest appraisal on their lived experiences in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, Because we just think that that's what um, the power structure in Northwest Arkansas needs to hear right now. I mean, because to be honest with you, I think Northwest Arkansas does a great job at, at touting how diverse our region is and rightly or wrongly that may be the case but when you when you dig a little bit deeper i don't think anybody's really taking any real efforts at digging a little bit beyond the numbers okay what does this number really mean um okay we are you know the latinx community is number two in the region what does that mean marshallese is number three the african-american community i think because of two and three are just i mean Good luck to you, you know, so. Um, the community, the black community mm-hmm. that I, I explained to you what it looked like, and it looks like still, because we're still here, we haven't gone. It's been taken off the city map. Mm-hmm. How many of you knew that? Raise of hands. Mm-hmm. Taken off the city of Fayetteville map. Do you understand what that means? Mm. Completely taken off. And last I heard, it was being used as an infill laboratory. Does that sound good? Those are words out of city. Now, they probably didn't think it was bad. Chris, when you, uh, when, when you, when you collect this data, what sort of buy-in are you getting from local politicians? Because you can do this census, and you can come on KUAF Radio, and you can tell our listeners about it, but we don't, we don't run the city. We don't, we don't, you know, what sort of buy-in are you getting from officials to say, okay, now we got this information, what are we going to do about it? That remains to be seen, Matt. That's a great question. So after we compile it, we, the plan is to report it. Um, so we'll have a series of what we call regular old-fashioned town halls. Kind of like this, where we'll invite the community in and our our government officials, local, state, and um, even national, if they want to come, there we invite them, um, as well as our business um, um, uh, community as well. We want them all at the table because we think it is vital for them to understand where our community is at this day and age in 2023. But not only that to share the information, we want them to understand that, hey, we you're gonna have to have some buy-in here as well. Because again, if you keep touting Northwest Arkansas as the place to be um, in, in the state of Arkansas and in 
um, the United States, here's what it's going to take. Um, here's what true equity looks like. Um, and also beyond that, we also are going to help them. We're going to give you some tools as well um, in terms of accountability. And they're not designed for, they're not gotcha mechanisms. Um, it's not designed for us to be like, hey, 429 News, uh, the city of Fayetteville sucks, and here's how they suck. That's not, that's not what it's designed to do. I think we'll name the podcast episode uh, that. <laughs> uh, or Walmart sucks, and here's how. They say they're about equity, but we also believe that it needs to go beyond signing a diversity pledge as well. I mean, because we know, I mean, well, I'll stop yeah. there. Yeah. Um, Ms. Uh, Tommy, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, a couple of more things I <laughs> yeah. wanted to say is that I think we also have to be present and at the table when a lot of discussions are going on about what's happening in our community. And so, you know, I, I'm gonna say that I'm on two boards. I'm on the uh, Fayetteville Historic District Commission and, and then somehow Washington County decided I needed to be on their board, the Historical Society. Mayor Jordan really pushed to have black representation on the Fayetteville Historic District Commission and there were two of us uh, myself and Joanne, I think she's at the board meeting right now, who are on the board. We're still trying to figure out how to get resources to preserve some of the structures that are still in our community because that's what this particular commission does. Goes around, it preserves this community. We have some, some, uh, some structures that we think are very important to our history. Um, that we are proposing to um, the Fayetteville uh, Historic District to maybe look at those um, and, and see what we can do as far as grant funding to restore some of those, um, those uh, structures. But unless and until we're at the table, those conversations will not happen. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Thank you, panelists. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs>